This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Nicene Creed. Shortly before noon on September 28th, 2009, in the small West African nation of Guinea, several hundred members of the security forces opened fire on a rally of tens of thousands of people who were peacefully gathered to protest the presidential election campaign of the then junta leader Musa Dadis Kamara. And the security forces who opened fire also individually or gang-raped women and sexually assaulted them with objects such as batons and bayonets. And these security forces then engaged in an organized cover-up to hide the effects of what they had done, the extent of their killings. They sealed off the stadium to remove the bodies and remove the bodies from the morgues and buried them in mass graves, many of which have yet to be identified. There was an investigation, miraculously, which concluded in 2017, but a date for the trial of the perpetrators still has not been named and may well never be named as long as there are still powerful people who've been implicated who are still involved in the government. And one of the survivors said, since that day, we cry and then we dry our tears and hope that we will have justice. A hope that seems to be rapidly fading away in Guinea and in many countries around the world where there are terrible just injustices being perpetrated, countries like Guinea that many of, many of us may not even be aware of. The tragic fact of our world is that even when justice comes, it is slow and it is inadequate and can never really put right the terrible wrongs that are being done. And of course, in many cases, justice never comes. We live in a world filled with injustice. The Human Slavery Index estimates there are about 40 million people trapped in human trafficking worldwide. We have refugees and migrants drowning in the Mediterranean in the English Channel. Of course, there are hundreds of thousands, even millions of unborn children who are aborted and discarded. We suffer the abuse and euthanizing of the elderly and the handicapped. There are massive multinational corporations that exploit the poor and poor countries and dump poison into the seas and the rivers. There are governments who are torturing their citizens, committing extrajudicial killings, genocide, re-education camps, mass sterilization. The list of horrors goes on and on. And in so many of these cases, those who are committing these evils and injustices do so with impunity, without punishment or any fear of punishment. And it seems like for every evildoer who was brought to justice and called to account, there are many more who go to their graves in peace without ever being judged. And if we have any conscience, if we have any sense of justice, there should be outrage 
over these evils. Because we cannot believe in right or wrong if there is no retribution for evil. If there is no judgment, if no one is called to account, then there is no moral order in the universe. If there is to be any kind of justice, any kind of moral order in the universe, evil needs to be brought into the light and needs to be named for what it is, condemned and destroyed. Because when there is no judgment, when there is no retribution for evil, when there is impunity, when people despair of this happening, nations and societies collapse into anarchy. And people turn to violence, first to defend themselves, and then to impose their own interests on other peoples, to enforce their will on others. And the strong dominate and terrorize and oppress and enslave and steal from the weak. And the police and the judicial systems just become a tool for the strong to protect themselves from the cry of the oppressed. ...are agreed this will happen. That at a time when no one can predict, the trumpet will sound, the skies will be ripped open, and Jesus Christ will return. Not in humility as an infant, as at his first coming, but in the full glory and power and dominion and authority of his Godhead. And Jesus is going to show up to conquer the devil and all the forces of evil. He's going to rescue his waiting people, and he's going to sit on the great white throne to execute judgment of all human beings, the living and the dead. And we confess as Christians that no human being will escape Jesus' judgment. And all of us, without exception, are going to stand before him to give an account for what we did and for what we did not do. There will be no impunity. No one will get away with evil. And every human being will receive as their reward either everlasting life in the presence of God or they will be cast out in the darkness of eternal death. And then Jesus is going to set up his kingdom that will have no end, a kingdom of peace and justice, a kingdom, an empire on which the sun will never set, where the lamb himself is the light and where every man and woman will, dwe will dwell in safety under their own vine and their own fig tree. And what I want to drive into your hearts today is that this is an essential part of the gospel story. The gospel does not end with the cross or with the resurrection or even with the ascension. The gospel is not complete until Jesus returns and sets everything that is wrong right. And a good news without the return of Christ would be like a book with the final chapter ripped out. Disappointing and unsatisfying and incomplete. And here in the middle of the story, we find ourselves singing along with you too, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. We're not fully happy. We're not fully satisfied. We're not able to sing and praise our Savior Jesus all the day long with big smiles on our faces because we still grieve and lament and we have sorrow and we cry out to God to make things right again. 
And if we have any love in our hearts, if the Holy Spirit has warmed us at all to the world around us, if we carry at all the heart of Jesus for the suffering in the world, we should be feeling grief and anger at sin in the world and at those who sin against others, the way people damage God's image bearers and offend against the Holy God. And we need God. We desperately need God to show up and to set the world right, to judge the world and to destroy evil and help us fulfill our original destiny in Christ's kingdom. So here we are in the Psalms again. I found myself again and again in the series on the Nicene Creed, turning to the book of Psalms. I'm kind of regretting not making this whole uh, series on the Psalms because the Christian hope is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. If you've ever tried to pull a stump out of the ground, you know what an impossible task that is as those roots just snake everywhere, holding down to the earth and to the rocks. And it's like that with the gospel and the Old Testament. This idea that God is the judge who's going to show up and set everything right is not a new idea that shows up in the New Testament. It goes back not just to the Psalms, but to the very book of Genesis in the beginning. And the confidence of the Old Testament saints and the confidence of the psalmist is that God is the king who's going to judge. In fact, you could describe that as the central theme of the book of Psalms. God is the king who judges. And in Psalm 9, God's people sing praises to him, not just because God has created the world, but because God reigns over the world. And the same God who has established order in creation is at work reestablishing order and rescuing the world from the chaos of human rebellion and sin. And God's kingdom, God's reign, expresses his perfect character as a just God. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, the psalmist says in Psalm 89. Justice emerges from the character of God. It's not just something God arbitrarily decides to do. Let me just make up some rules. It comes from the very heart and the very character of God. Justice is the responsibility of the king. Justice in the Old Testament is never abstract. It is always deeply personal, and it's the king's job to make sure that the right is upheld and that there is justice and that there is equity. And if there is injustice and if there is inequity, it is always, in the end, the fault of the king. A king who allows injustice to prevail in his kingdom is a bad ruler. And God would be a bad God if he just sat back and allowed evil to happen, if he was just passive and allowed injustice and inequity and oppression and slavery to occur. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian and from the Balkans knows a lot about the depths of human evil. And he says, he writes in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, a non-indignant God, a God who never gets angry, this God would be an accomplice in violence, deception, and injustice. 
We need a God who is angry at evil and injustice in the world. And this is the God that the psalmist worships. And he proclaims, the Lord is known by his acts of justice. This is how God reveals himself through his justice. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for justice. Justice, righteousness, judgment. In the Western world, we see justice as being enacted by a neutral, detached, objective person sitting on the bench in the courtroom, symbolized by the Greek statue of justice with her eyes blindfolded, holding the scales. And this judge is there in his robes, maybe even his wig, pronouncing judgment on the cases that are brought before him or her. The Old Testament vision of justice is much bigger than that. Because the Old Testament judge is a person who gets off the bench and rolls up their sleeve to actually fix what is wrong in the world. Not just writing verdicts and reports, but actually going and changing what is wrong. Fighting injustice wherever it is found. And we have a whole book in the Old Testament called the Book of Judges. None of which happens in the courtroom. None of which happens in the legal system. The judge in the Old Testament is a person who liberates God's helpless, needy people from the oppressor. Someone who conquers evil, like Samson, and who creates space for justice and peace and human flourishing under God to happen. And so when we say God is the just king who judges... We don't just mean that God is the neutral umpire who says who's in and who's out. God is the one who actually shows up to fix what is wrong with the world. And his righteousness means that God is a rectifier, someone who fixes what is wrong and sets it to right. And our God is the just king who judges. He's firmly committed to justice because it is part of his unchanging character. And because of who God is, he has bound himself to fix a world that has gone horribly off the rails. Justice comes from the just king. It is deeply personal for God and for us. And notice that at the end of Psalm 9, the psalmist makes the point that The nations who practice injustice are the ones who have forgotten God. Not by a fit of absent-mindedness or amnesia. They have deliberately excised God and torn him out of their memory and evicted them from their hearts and their lives and their systems of justice. When the Russian political dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn was arrested and sent to the Gulag in in Siberia, he met an old man who told him, these things have happened because men have forgotten God. And in the Soviet Union, it was a deliberate forgetting of God, where bishops and priests were murdered and churches were torn down. Because as soon as we abandon the God of justice, we open the door to all kinds of evils and horrors of injustice. 
And then we no longer see every human being as a precious image bearer of God, but someone who can be stomped down into the mud with impunity. And for God, justice is deeply personal. God is not neutral. He's not impartial or unbiased and distant and passive. God is proud to name himself as the hope of the oppressed. The God of the sojourner, the the, the migrant, the refugee, the widow, the orphan, the poor. And God says, I hear their cries. And I will never forget the needy or abandon the afflicted. And because our God is this kind of God, we cry out to him for justice to happen in our world. You know, I might ask ourselves, if God is truly just, and if God holds all the power in his hands, why is there so much evil in the world? And you may feel this as a question of doubt, of course. And there are good answers for those questions of the problem of evil. Not least that God wants to give some room for human freedom and moral responsibility. We're not billiard balls where there's immediate reaction. We don't immediately get shocked and jolted when we sin. There's time for reflection and moral choice. But I think this is also a question of faith that God's people should be asking, that we should be asking God. God, if you call yourself a just God, And if you do have all power and authority and dominion, Lord, why is there still evil and injustice in the world? Why do the wicked prosper? Why is the enemy victorious? Why has justice not yet come? And the closer we get to God, the more deeply we go into his character, the more urgently we should be praying that kind of prayer those kinds of prayers that are prayed in the Psalms again and again, because there is no justification for evil. And there is no neat, satisfying, philosophical answer we can give for the, pro- for the problem of evil in the world now. And therefore, God's covenant people wrestle with him and argue with him and remind God of his unswerving character and his commitment to his promises. And we cry out, Like the psalmist in Psalm 9, God, arise and judge the nations. Because the only satisfying resolution to the problem of evil is for God to actually show up himself and do something about it. To destroy it. I've started seeing a counselor online for my own mental and emotional health. And he, this guy, Jerry, made a comment to me, just kind of off the cuff the other day. He said, God's judgment is salvation. God's judgment is salvation. And as it happens, my counselor is an African-American. I think he's a Baptist pastor. And I thought it's interesting that would come from an African-American person whose people have suffered slavery and segregation and systemic racism for so long because God's judgment actually gives powerful hope to the oppressed. 
And in the Old Testament, people are calling out for God to come and judge the world and through that to save your people. In 1807, an abridged version of the Bible was published, titled Parts of the Holy Bible, Selected for the Use of the Negro Slaves in the British West India Islands. It was a Bible out of which a lot had been removed. Of course, there were the parts about slaves obeying their masters. They left in the story of Joseph going down to Egypt, for example, as a slave who patiently suffered in slavery. They kept in those parts of the Bible they felt would allow their slaves to remain docile and obedient. But of course, they had to remove large parts of the Bible. Naturally, the whole book of Exodus was taken out. We certainly wouldn't want our slaves reading about a God who heard the cry of his oppressed people and delivered them from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and drowned the slaveholders in the Red Sea and led the people of Israel into the promised land. Of course, the book of Revelation was taken out where God appears on behalf of his persecuted people. The gospel, the gospel itself is wrapped up in judgment. And it's no accident that the very first promise of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3 is contained within God's word of judgment over the serpent. And in God's word of judgment over the serpent is the promise of a serpent crusher to come because God's judgment is salvation. Here we are. It's the first Sunday in Advent. I caught me unaware. I thought it started in December. Jesus comes at a day when we least expect it, apparently. It's the first Sunday in Advent, the weeks leading up to Christmas, when the church looks forward not just to the first coming of Christ, but also to his second coming. Because all these Old Testament hopes from Genesis and the Psalms and the prophets all these hopes for divine justice and judgment come to fruition in Jesus. And when you read the opening pages of Luke and listen to the song of Mary, for example, singing about God bringing down rulers from their thrones and lifting up the humble, filling the hungry with good things and sending the rich away empty, we're realizing that Jesus is the answer to our cry for justice. And Jesus appears as God's anointed king who's going to right everything that is wrong with the world. He's coming to proclaim freedom to the captives. He's going to give sight to the blind. He's going to heal the sick and to raise the dead. And when Jesus appears, we discover that God's justice is deeply personal. God's justice is bound up with the just king he has sent. And when Jesus appears, there is a kind of crisis of judgment for everybody, not just the Gentiles, but for Israel as well. Are you going to be with the king or against the king? Are you going to respond in allegiance or rebellion? Are you going to support God's justice or obstruct it? Do you choose to be in his kingdom or outside of his kingdom? Because Jesus has come, 
to judge the world. He came the first time not to judge, but to save, but he's coming the second time to judge the living and the dead. And if you are not in Christ, if you have not given him your heart's allegiance, the day of judgment can only be a day of dread. Because every word that is whispered in secret on that day will be shouted from the rooftops. And even the secret thoughts and intentions of the heart will be fully revealed before the one to whom we must give account. And do you really think you will be able to stand before Jesus on that day and say with a straight face, Yes, I have loved the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my strength and with all my soul and with all my might, and I have loved my neighbor as myself. It would be foolish in the extreme to show up on that day unprepared. Because outside of Jesus, all you can hope to hear is God's sentence of condemnation. The verdict of perfect divine justice over your life, summing up your life and your very being, a sentence of condemnation against which there can be no appeal and no hope. And God is allowing you to hear this word now while there is still hope. And one reason that God delays his justice is to leave room for repentance because God is not willing that anyone should perish. He wants us all to find life in Christ. And here's what God offers you today as he's offered all of us. If you are willing to accept God's just sentence of condemnation over you now for the way that you have deliberately forgotten God and excluded him from your heart and your life, if you're willing to bow and acknowledge and receive that sentence, and if you're willing to turn with your whole heart to Christ as your only hope, God will show you the same amazing grace and forgiveness and acceptance that he has shown all of us. It's the only way to have hope on the day of judgment. Because if you belong to Jesus, that day is not a day of terror for us, but a day of joy and of hope. As John Calvin wrote, we're not going to come before any other judge than him who is our advocate and has taken our cause in hand. If you are a Christian and you are brought before the tribunal, before the great white throne, you are going to stand before the one who loved you and gave his own life for you, who bought you with his own precious blood. And as Paul says in Romans 8, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. No threat of judgment. No guilt resting upon us who are hidden in Jesus. And notice that Paul says this sentence of no condemnation we already receive now. Because by faith, we've already heard Christ's verdict over us. 
vindicated, justified, not guilty, declared and made innocent and righteous as God's sheer gift of grace for anyone who receives it. And not only that, by the spirit of life, as Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, the spirit of Jesus is at work in everyone who believes in Christ, changing us from the inside into people who act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God as Micah prophesied. Because when we stand before Christ, your whole life lived is going to be the evidence of whether you belong to Jesus or not. It's not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, who will be recognized by Jesus, but those who do the will of his Father in heaven. And our righteous judge will reward all those who have loved and obeyed him. Obeyed him. And he will say to us, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the worlds. As Christians, we look forward to the day of judgment for ourselves as a day of public vindication. When those who are despised and judged and mistreated and misinterpreted by the world will be declared by God as his children, as those who are in the right. And of course, the judgment of Jesus is not the end of the story. It stands at the very end of this story, at the very end of human history. But Jesus' judgment is God's salvation that opens up the doors of his everlasting kingdom, his rule that will have no end. And the judgment of Jesus at the end of human history is the beginning of a new story. A wonderful story that will go on and on, each chapter better than the last. Because we have a God who doesn't just sit on the bench pronouncing verdicts. He's actually rolled up his sleeve to make the world right again. To actually create a world without evil without injustice, without tears, without suffering. God wants to give humanity a world filled with the holy love of our creator. A world where the lamb is the light, where we can finally be what God created us to be. His beloved children who enjoy abundant life in his presence, who drink and drink and drink freely of the river of life and feast forever in God's temple. This is what we believe. We're going to pray a prayer together, which is going to appear on the screen behind me. And this is the first collect of Advent from the Book of Common Prayer. And let's pray this prayer out loud together as we conclude. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, 
we may rise to the life immortal. Through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Yes, Lord Jesus, we pray together that you would come and that you would come quickly. O oh Lord, the whole creation is groaning in travail until the sons of God be revealed. And all of humanity is longing and crying out for justice that only you can supply. Lords, we look around our world and we see so much evil and so much injustice and so much oppression and so much sin against you. And it's all because the nations have forgotten God, their king and their creator. Lord, help us to be a people who has not forgotten you. Keep us ever, keep, help us to keep you ever before our eyes, especially Christ's our King and our Judge, our only hope. We thank you for the grace, the gift of the gospel, O Lord, the sure promise of everlasting life that we have through the gift of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf georgia Dot org. Thanks for listening.